it is customary to distinguish between mortal and venial sins. So, <clears throat> in your handout, you'll see that I've um, provided you with some definitions. I'm going to read from paragraph 1472 from the Catechism, um, and it will kind of give us an outline of the distinction between eternal punishments and temporal punishments. And those become relevant as we understand what exactly purgatory is accomplishing. <clears throat> Paragraph 1472. To understand this doctrine and practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here, on earth, or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. These two punishments must not be conceived of as kind of vengeance inflicted by God from without, but as following from the very nature of sin. A conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. Now, you have to excuse me for reading so much to you. I'm going to read just a tiny bit more from the next paragraph, and hopefully I can make some connections here. Paragraph 1473 says, and the first sentence what I'm about to read is for you in your outline too, but I think that's where it's important to hear. The forgiveness of sins and the restoration of the communion with God entail the remission of the eternal punishment of sin. Let me repeat that. The forgiveness of sins and the restoration of the communion with God entail the remission of eternal punishment of sin. But temporal punishment of sin remains. So you can get saved, you can be right with God, you can have fellowship with God and be forgiven of eternal punishment, but temporal, that's where the venial sins come in, but temporal punishment of sin remains. And, and at least for me, that's, that's the, the strangest thing of, of the doctrine is, it's so contrary to our, 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 I would argue, our, our biblical view. But let me finish. <clears throat> the temporal punishment of sin remains while patiently bearing sufferings and trials of all kinds. When the day comes, serenely facing death, the Christian must strive to accept this temporal punishment of sin as a grace. Forgive me for chuckling. He should strive by works of mercy and charity, as well by prayer and the various practices of penance, to put off completely the old man and to put on the new man. So, so, I hope that was helpful uh, to some degree. So let me let me let me define for you the the um, what a mortal sin is. And because, like I was saying in, in, that, in that first passage, or in the first sentence of paragraph 1473 from the Catechism, 
you can have eternal punishment dealt with. That, 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 that is accomplished in, when, some, when somebody becomes um, a Christian in, in their tradition. And that can happen in the initiation of baptism. And, 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 and those eternal punishments are satisfied. But then, then you have the cooperation and, and the venial sins that it require dealing with. <clears throat> so according to the Catechism, eternal punishment is the penalty for unrepented mortal sin, grave sin, separating the sinner from communion with God for all eternity, the condemnation of the unrepentant sinner to hell. So. A mortal sin is a gravely sinful act. And I think I defined for you there mortal sins. Mortal sins, a grave infraction of the law that God destroys, that God that destroys the divine life in the soul of the sinner, constituting a turn away from God. For a sin to be mortal, three conditions must be present. Grave matter, full knowledge of the evil of the act, and full consent of the will. And, and I provide for you the, those numbers in parentheses there are the paragraph numbers from the Catechism. Mortal sins destroy charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is the ultimate end in his beatitude, by referring an inferior good to him. <clears throat> so, you might be asking, what is what is a grave sin? What is a mortal sin? And according to the Catechism, they appeal to the passage in Scripture where the young rich um, man is is in, in question with Jesus. And so here is the answer according to Jesus: Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your mother and father. Those are all just some basic examples of some mortal grave sins. <clears throat> the gravity of sins is more or less great. And this is important. Murder is graver than theft. One must also take into account who is wronged. Violence against parents in and of itself is graver than violence against a stranger. And in this, and that's from the Catechism, paragraph 1858. And this is sort of relevant to the doctrine of purgatory because, as was, I'll, I'll point out, is there is sort of this um, calculus of sorts of what, what one sin is greater than the other sin and how it gets dealt with is going to be contingent in your time in, in, in purgatory. Um, a mortal sin cannot be done accidentally. A mortal sin is such that the person committing the sin knows that their sin is wrong and yet is still deliberately, still deliberately commits the sin anyway. So those, those are grave sins. And those sins um, are the ones that are not dealt with in purgatory. Those, if there is not remission of sin, if there is not fellowship with God, that is, a, if, you, if you're guilty of these sins, that's where you go to hell. There is no purgatory for these sins. But um, I'm sure there's certainly a workaround uh, on there for them for that. Um, temporal punishment. Temporal punishment is purification of the unhealthy attachments to creatures. 
which is a consequence of sin that perjures even after death, we must be purified either during our earthly life through prayer and conversion, which comes through the fervent charity, or after death in purgatory. And this is in relationship to, to venial sins, and I, and I have that defined there for you too as well. Venial sin, which does not destroy the divine life in the soul, as does mortal sin, though it diminishes and wounds it, Venial sin is the failure to observe necessary moderation in lesser matters of the moral law, or in grave matters acting without full knowledge of complete consent. And that's kind of what I was talking about. So you can still have some traces of mortal or grave sin. Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say that to understand the whole Catholic system, you have to go all the way back to baptism. Sure. And they are, they, the saying there is it's ex opera operata, which means it saves you. But then it leaks out. <laughs> <laughs> so then you have to go to confession when you were talking about mortal sins. For them, salvation is a very works oriented process where. Baptism saves you, but now I gotta do works. I gotta do contrition. I gotta say my rosaries. I got to go to confession. All these things are ways of filling, plugging the holes, including moral sense. But it's a. Uh, I just want to say there is a way. It's right, and they give lots of rights too. So. Sure, indeed, and that's where, like, even in the latter half of that of that definition of venial sins. You almost make, um, it says here, venial sin is a failure to observe necessary moderation in the lesser matters of the moral law, or in the grave matters. So, I mean, you, you know, you can all think of examples of the list that I gave that, that can be pardonable. Or, or, or when you have this calculus, and it's so subjective, you can probably find somebody to find some mercy on you who might be able to turn that grave sin into something not as significant as, you know, something uh, worthy of eternal punishments and, 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 and it yet be a venial sin. At least, at least in my mind, that sounds like, I mean, you know, people in good faith or in good practice in, in the Catholic Church that might have had a divorce or, you know, and you have annulments. So, so, I mean, they've got ways around this. That, um, that benefit them, or at least try and bolster their view. Jim? Yeah, and, 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 and that's a very fascinating subject that, that I didn't really get into, but um, there's no doubt in medieval times that this practice or this doctrine really was subservient to, to the abuses in the church and, and it really gave birth to it. And, and rightly so. Um, <clears throat> um, I got here, venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently happiness. And here we have a citation in the Catechism from Augustine. 
While he is in the flesh, man cannot help but have at least some light sins. But do not despise these sins which we call light. If you take them light when you weigh them, tremble when you count them. A number of light objects make a great mass. A number of drops fills a river. A number of grain makes a heap. What then is our hope? Above all, confession. Now, had I done some more study, there, the, the catechism ends with an ellipsis. And I was that close to going to look it up. I didn't, though. Because it makes you want to know, I'm kind of curious what he had to say in mind. But, again, I don't think you have proof of purgatory here, but you have just language talking about um, dealing with venial sins in a manner that's distinguished from mortal sins. And that may or may not be Augustine's intent here, but that's what he's being utilized here in citing him in the Catechism. Um, these two punishments um, are unique, um, and, and, and that's what makes, you know, the doctrine of purgatory um, where, where it becomes relevant. And, and if you read that um, passage there, um, I provided the definition expiation there, and, and, and um, I thought that was, you know, that is the process in which, you know, uh, atonement is accomplished, and I'll read that to help me, which is provided for you. The act of redemption and atonement for sin, which Christ won for us by the pouring out of his blood on the cross, by his obedient love, even to the end. And how they stopped right there, we can say amen, but, but they, they didn't stop there. The expiation of sins continues in the mystical body of Christ and the communion of saints, by the joining our human acts of atonement to the redemptive action of Christ, both in this life and in purgatory. And so that's kind of talking about what Mark was alluding to, that, you know, how would you like to come alongside God and, 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 and achieve, in, you know, cooperate in your salvation? I mean, you, you know, at least to me, that, that sounds blasphemous, it's, 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 it's offensive. But to, to the card-carrying Catholic, that's like, sign me up. Or, or at, least, at least you have to. Again, I shared that personal experience at my wife's um, funeral, um, or at my wife's grandma's funeral. Not a lot of people find this very comforting, um, which I can't knock them. However, if you sit down with Aunt Mary, who's the this conservative, you're going to have somebody sign on to this, and, and at least you got to respect that, that, that they're being consistent, and, and we're going to disagree, and we're going to disagree strongly. So, um, <clears throat> so that's our understanding of how you deal with eternal punishments and temporal punishments and the distinction between mortal sins and venial sins is all, you know, um, precedes, you know, what, what's going to take place in purgatory and what's going on there. <coughs> um, doctrine of purgatory according to the Roman Catholic Church. Each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death. 
in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ, either entrance into blessedness of heaven <clears throat> through purification or immediately, or immediate and everlasting damnation. Those who are perfectly purified go straight to heaven and experience the beatific vision. That is, they see the divine essence with an intuitive vision and even face to face without mediation of the creature, of any creature. That's um, 1023 of the Catechism. And I'll recall my attendance to my, grand, my, my wife's grandma's funeral. That, that's the whole purpose of the, of the funeral mass. Because you don't go and offer up a sacrifice to, to God if, if, the, if the person in the box is going straight to heaven. It, it, it would be pointless. Because there's venial sins remaining, that's why we're here. You, you, you offer masses, indulgences, you can acts of penance. All of these things are going to, you know, in some respect, help her shorten her time in, in purgatory. And so, um, and, and so, that, that's what's happening there. And so, let me define purgatory for us. A state of final purification after death and before entrance into heaven for those who died in God's friendship. But were only imperfectly purified. A final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter the joy of heaven. And they cite um, 1031 and 1472 in that definition. And so, who is purgatory for? And I think I provide you guys that passage. Who is purgatory for? Passage, uh, paragraph 1030 of the Catechism says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Paragraph 1031. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. Here's a funny note on this. When I was writing this, and Jessica asked me to bring this in, um, <coughs> when you're in your word processor, the word damned is underlined with a blue line. And if you hover over it, it says, this sentence might be offensive to the reader. You know, one of those. <laughs> well, you darn tootin'. <laughs> if it's not, it should be. Um, the church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speak of a cleansing fire. I'm going to read to you a little bit more. This is a citation in the Catechism from Gregory the Great. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age or in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be given in this age, but certain others in the age to come. So, 
you know, as good Reformed folk, covenant theologians, and some of us who are familiar with that, the, the, the ready and the not, or see, I'm butchering that, but this age and the age to come, we just understand that as we're in this age, and there's an age to come, and here I think they're attempting to use this as a proof text for, you know, some intermediate state, and I don't think that that's what, um, at least in biblical language, you can um, gather that from. Um, 1032, this teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them. Above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified, they may attain the beatific vision of God. The church also commands almsgiving, indulgences, and works for penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. And then they cite a passage from Job, where his sons were purified and their father's sacrifice. Why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and offer our prayers for them. So, you get to help God. You, you know, this is, I mean, I mean, this is, this is their view. Um, they're, they're participating in their salvation and they need to take time off for those that you love. I mean, you know, and, and, and you have these conversations with, with the, the, the devout Catholic, um, they, they find it offensive that you find their view offensive. And so it's kind of, it's a tough conversation to have because <clears throat> here they're coming at it like, hey, look, I'm helping grandma. And then I just want to say, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. Um, you, and, and it's like, ultimately what I, I think what we'll take away from this, this, this view is like, their Jesus is impotent. He's, um, he's not all powerful. He isn't able to accomplish what he set out to do because he needed, he needed you and he needed me and he needs his help. And, um, so... The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The traditions of the church by reference to certain texts of scripture. Oh, you know, I read that already, excuse me. <clears throat> um, the prayers for the dead are appealed to, so I have made allusions to that. You know, this, this is our view. Um, here are some, just some thoughts out loud. Um, the length of their stay in purgatory is not known. It could be 10 years, it could be 1,000 years. The duration as well as the intensity of the suffering varies according to the degree of purification needed. So again, that calculus of <clears throat> the types of sin will we'll get remedied accordingly. You know, um, that's why there's no telling how long somebody gets, you know, uh, in my experience at the most recent funeral I went to. Um, that's why you never stop praying for the dead. You, you, you just... You know, there's no clock that says stop. It, it, it's it's pray on. And, 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 you know, on that note, I, for the first time in my life, thought about, like, have, have, have I ever prayed 
for the dead, and then they want to argue that this is typical, this is the common practice all throughout church history. And I found myself like, I can see where you might have prayed for the dead. I sat in that funeral that morning going, dear God, I so pray and hope that whatever that woman believed was the most prominent thing in the whole world that she believed that her salvation was completely dependent upon Christ. You know, like, like that was a sincere prayer that I had for a woman that, you know, I was very fond of who believed some awful things. And, and I don't know, and I, and I don't have to speculate, but I know that that's what my faith is dependent on. I know that's what the scriptures teach. And so, you know, as far as prayers for the dead go, I say we pray for God's mercy for all people. And, and I think that's when you see a great deal of the church fathers in history. You know, some of it is um, probably certainly praying for people's um, intermediate state. And then you have people that are just praying for God's mercy on those who have deceased. And so that's another thing. <clears throat> Um, we're running out of time. Time for purgatory can be shortened by the good works of the faithful here on earth, especially the sacrifice of the Mass. Um, I wanted to end, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll skip ahead as a hair. Um, is purgatory a particular place rather than a state, or a state rather than a particular place? Are the pains of purgatory due to fire? Are the pains those which arise from the consciousness that of having offended God? What are the severity and duration of those pains? These and other questions of, of like kind are not included in the domain of Catholic doctrine. <clears throat> These doctrines about which there exists no decision or judgment of the church. Nevertheless, it should be known that those in the opinion of the majority of the theologians, the torments of purgatory consist in part of those of fire, or at least in such are analogous to the pain produced by fire. We will add that according to St. Augustine and St. Thomas, whose opinion is generally adopted, the pains of purgatory surpass those of this life, says the angelic doctor. That's a citation from Hodge, Systematic Theology. Um, I guess there's just no consensus, and I think what some of these writers allude to is that in, in, in the medieval, early medieval times, this purgatory was know, a lot like hell. It was, it was very painful, whereas he's, um, Hodge cites Cardinal Wiseman, who in his lectures on pur purgatory say anything regarding the pains of purgatory other than the pains. You know, so some people are sort of making purgatory a little palatable. And even in these more recent catechism um, glossary definitions, you, you, you kind of see sort of this um, more of an emphasis on purification rather than what, what's actually happening there. I mean, it was, who could actually know it? Um, I think I'll stop. Um, again, my intent is, you know, next time we're willing, I'll I'll attempt to give a, a, a more defense or, or give, you know, how do they support the view, you know, from their view. And then I'll give a, 
uh, I, I will attempt to uh, rebut it. That, that's what I will attempt to do. Um, you, know, if you, you know, I don't know how good I'll be able to answer questions, but I'll take some. Uh, I just want to say I appreciate the, the context you gave us, the doctrine that you said. Forgive me for going off script, but I think that actually gave advice. It's really easy to talk about doctrine and theology in a little white library tower and not in a pastoral. I'm from a Catholic family, I go back and I mass with my family a lot. The, the pastoral element is hard because my, my family aren't so devout in knowing the doctrine or probably hearing what the church doctrine is. And so there's no point in me quoting catechism to someone I need to deal with the individual in front of me. But then, you know, weddings and funerals, like when is the time to have those discussions? That, those are hard. I mean, just, I pray for wisdom because I don't know if there's a, yeah. a right answer. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, just to share a little personal, I mean, you know, I shared with Rick a few weeks ago, you know, that night after our funeral, it was a pleasant one. You know, we were sitting around the fire, having a, a nice time, you know, celebrating Grandma. And um, this subject was at its, it was, it was being discussed and, and it, it didn't end well. And uh, so th this conversation isn't easy to have. And, uh, but you gotta have it. You know, if we're gonna have a view, we have to be able to communicate that, you know. Well, again, like Hodge says, you know, that, that was pretty much the, the view, I think, historically. There is a purifying fire, whether it's literal or consciousness of some sort, but more recent times it, it's been, I think, uh, mellowed out. It's a more emphasis on purification. In the 1960s, when I was in Catholic school, and we were still handing out holy cards, which told you the plenary indulgence you could get if you said this prayer for those that were in purgatory. So, uh, I mean, it's, this is, even though the church says that they ended in the point, that still was being taught. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I had the examples about um, plenary indulgences that, you know, one of the, one of the fun, uh, features of purgatory is the, the, the Pope has the keys. You know, he he can say you you're pardoned or you're not. He can shorten the time. He he can do all of those things, and it's uh, again pretty arbitrary, but certainly a feature. He's Christ vicar on church, yeah, yeah, on earth.
So in a lot of cases, that's where you know people said indulgences, but uh, if you look at the word charity, okay, that means something to the Catholic. Okay, they have to do something. Okay, so it could be giving money, it could be working. Regardless, as you are, you know, in their eyes, working out your salvation in a particular way, but they twist it around such that you know the work of you know of Jesus Christ is not good enough. Okay. And that's why, at least speaking for myself, you know, when I came to faith, um, you know, way back when, in the, in the late 70s, uh, it was, okay, actually, you mean, I don't have to do all this stuff? Even to the point where me and my friends, you know, growing up, we used to actually fool around and, like, joke about it. We're all going to hell, okay? Because, you know, everything that we're doing is... It's not good enough, okay? I mean, we're not going to be able to you know, pull this one off. So, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, I think that, um, and then on top of that, and I, I know maybe I'm talking a little bit too much here, but I'll just leave with that is where, um, you know, the, you know, just the mind of men, I don't think any of this is scriptural, where you have a pope that, quote, unquote, has apostolic, you know, um, heritage, right, uh, succession, if you will, and they're here saying, this is the way it is, okay, and it's just coming out of their heads, it's not scriptural.